Hello and welcome back to The Long Short. I'm your host, Drew Nicholl. I've been kept away from the studio for a little while now, so I am very happy to be back and I have an excellent guest joining me today. In fact, this is probably going to be one of our easiest episodes we've ever had because I was sitting in the audience at last week's uh, Next Generation Manager Forum, which I have to say was at the stunning Royal Institution in Mayfair. And the whole day was just so packed with great insights from so many different panellists that I have asked one of them to join me in the studio to share some of those points with the Longshore community. Elissa von Broomson Cleaver is a partner and managing director at Omni Partners, which is an investment management group focused on private markets. Elissa, you are very welcome to The Long Short. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks to you and Ama. I appreciate it. So the point of the Next Generation Manager Forum is to bring together a community of startup or emerging investment managers to knowledge share and, and build networks where they can in what can otherwise be quite an isolating career, at least to begin with. Very often, these are entrepreneurs that will have stepped away from quite large organizations to start up their own funds, and they'll be facing all sorts of operational and business challenges for the first time. And the forum allows those people to hear from people who have lived it themselves and can pass down some really valuable wisdom that they gained along the way. So, Elissa, could you just start by telling us a little bit about Omni's journey over the past decade? Sure. So um, Omni was founded in exactly the way that you referenced a moment ago. What I mean by that is our founder is a gentleman named Stephen Clark, and he had spent you know, the first nearly 20 years of his career working as a prop trader within the big investment banks. And he came to the conclusion that he was far more entrepreneurial um, than to be sort of constrained by the shackles of working within the investment banks. And so he made the decision um, in the early noughties to strike out on his own. And that's when he set up Omni Partners. Um, I think Omni Partners has a really fascinating backstory. And what I mean by that is we started out as a single strategy hedge fund manager. And we did exactly what Steve had done from a trading perspective um, in a hedge fund format for the first several years of our existence. You know, we then um, experienced something unprecedented, which was the global financial crisis. And that caused us as a collective group to take a bit of a step back and think about, you know, what we were doing and how did we create a business that had genuine longevity? You know, one of the challenges I think of hedge funds, of course, um, is that it oftentimes I think feels as though you're only as good as your last trade. And what I mean by that is in a reasonably sort of liquid in environment, you know, whereby um, you, investors can make the decision to redeem their money on relatively short notice, you know, you can go from sort of hero nearly to zero. Um, you know, it feels like overnight, um, but generally with a pretty short uh, redemption period. And so, you know, back in 2009, we decided to take a, a real sort of deep look at what we could do to ensure some longevity in the organization. And we concluded that one of the best ways for us to achieve this was to actually look at how we could reliably, credibly enter private markets. And at that point, we made the decision having done a lot of research about sort of different areas that offered different uh, return profiles to enter the private credit space. And that was in 2009. Now, the way that we did that was with our own capital. Why? Because we felt it was really important that we demonstrated that we could do what we were setting out to do with our own cash. And after we generated or demonstrated a track record in that space, um, you know, we then opened our strategy up to external capital. And our progression within private markets grew from there on. Uh, so we made the decision then thereafter to enter private equity 
Again, we started with our own capital um, and demonstrated a track record, you know, and we continue to build on that. And so today, um, having made the decision to actually spin out that hedge fund group last year so that it could operate on its own, you know, very successfully, um, you know, we are now wholly private markets focused, which I think is oftentimes a bit of a surprise to people when they think about our history. Excellent. And I think it's 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 nice, nice to start with a positive um uh, a great success story that that people can hopefully look to emulate themselves if, if they're a emerging manager listening. I just wanted to touch upon the point because uh, you, you talk about adding asset classes, and and a point you made on the day was that this had quite significant implications for your um, talent management and, and acquisition of of bringing in new people and and obviously staffing these new strategies. Could you just speak to that? Because I thought that was a really um, important point you made. Yeah. So, you know, I think that as an emerging manager, you can, you know, you can feel overwhelmed by the requirement to bring in new talent. Um, But what I would say is as an existing manager, you can feel that same way. Uh, because, you know, as you decide to expand your focus and look at other strategies, you know, I think it's it's really tough to make the argument that people who are very qualified um, in one strategy are necessarily going to be as qualified in executing another strategy. And so what we've always done is we've looked to bring people in who have specific skill sets, um, you know, that are focused on the strategies that we're looking to launch. And although, you know, you're then operating from the front foot in terms of being an established manager, you still feel very much like an emerging manager because you're building something again from scratch. You know, I think that's one of the beauties of the alternatives investment management space is that it is the type of industry that offers, I think, a lot of opportunities for people who are entrepreneurial. But I guess coming back to the question you asked, you know, when you are looking to recruit, um, you know, you need to be mindful about the skill sets that you're looking for and the opportunities that you can offer people um, who you are looking to bring in, especially when you're launching a, a new strategy, even if you're an established manager, because you are, face it, you know, un- unproven within that specific strategy. And is there a, a distinction to draw there between uh, junior and senior hires there in terms of the way you go about finding these people? Yeah, for us, there has been. Um, you know, I think that we've acknowledged that there's a lot of great talent floating around within the broader financial services sector in London. Um, and it can be really challenging to sort of sift through what I'll refer to as the noise. You know, we, although we're an established um, organization, don't have a huge team. You know, that means that we do not have a dedicated resource focused solely on, you know, talent and recruitment uh, management. So, you know, we need to, as sort of the partners of the business, senior members of management, um, you know, oftentimes run with those recruitment processes. So the idea that, you know, we could post a job online and receive, you know, hundreds of CVs for that job and effectively filter through them, unfortunately, just isn't realistic. Um, So when we think about recruiting for more junior and mid-level staff, what we've tended to do is gravitate towards the recruitment consultants. And the reason for that is that we've relied on them really to act as that sort of effective first filter um, to go out, collect the CVs sort of work their way through, you know, the candidates, what they have to offer, how they meet the specifications of what we're looking for, um, and hopefully filter out, do some of the filtering work, filter out, you know, the people who aren't the right fit in the first instance. 
Now, I'd contrast that, however, with more senior hires. Um, with more senior hires, you know, that is something where, you know, we are looking, f we generally have a, a strong view of what we, what we want, what we're looking for. And in those instances, you know, again, we've tended to use um, trusted recruitment consultants, advisors in more of a retained search capacity, um, you know, whereby they're effectively acting as headhunters and going out to identify talent to then give us a very short list that's already highly curated. And again, we find that that saves time. And what we do on the senior hires more so than the junior and mid-level hires is seek wherever we can to triangulate from a personal network perspective. Much like any other industry out there, we have a situation where smaller players will always struggle to compete with their larger peers on a purely compensation model. But you and others made a point that there are many other things that these smaller uh, fund managers can offer when it comes to um, the working culture. But the point I really wanted to zero in on was was this point you made about it's not just having the culture among your existing team, it's about being able to articulate that to prospective hires. Could I just ask you to elaborate on that? Uh, absolutely. I think that when you're working in an environment such as the environment that we all work in, you know, which is uh, an environment that is, you know, an element of high stress and also high expectation as a result. Um, you know, you oftentimes find that you want to have a very sort of strong collaborative working relationship amongst the team. So I think cultural fit is extremely important. What we've discovered during the recruitment process and also the talent retention process, frankly, is that it's very important to be able to articulate two things in particular. The first is, what exactly are you setting out to do? What are you trying to achieve? And how does the specific role that you are recruiting for fit in that broader picture? And that then plays into the second thing that's very important to articulate, which is what does the growth trajectory or growth dynamic for that individual look like within the organization? That could be specifically related to their role growing within their own division, but equally it could be related to the way that their role will grow as your strategy grows or as you diversify your business. Um, and I think because we've always come from such an entrepreneurial mindset, we've always wanted to recruit people who have the view that they can be more over time than what they start out as. And what's critical when you're trying to articulate those two points is number one, having cohesion in terms of view across the team. So each person who's going to be, you know, recruiting or interviewing that individual, sort of sharing that view and being able to articulate it, but really importantly, making sure that you have a spokesperson who can really thoroughly sort of share the vision and really sell the journey and get people excited about it. Because I think oftentimes when you're recruiting, you, know, you, can, you can fall into the trap of thinking it's all about you learning about the candidate. And that's very true and that's very important. However, what's equally important is making sure that the candidate is learning about you because fit does work both ways. And, you know, sometimes it may not be the founder. Sometimes it may not be the hiring manager um, you know, who's best at articulating the vision and the way that the role fits within the broader organization. So just figure out who can do that effectively and make sure that they're involved in the process. Because, you know, if, if, if you're going to be perhaps you know, only in a position to offer, say, average compensation. So that's not going to, you know, tilt the scales in your favor. You know, what else can you offer? And really offering a path to development and growth 
if you are in, you know, an entrepreneurial organization that does really value high achievers is so important because intellectual stimulation we've always found is what keeps people around. Absolutely. And and so as we build out the, the foundations, if we sort of go on a bit of a, um, or build out a bit of a roadmap here, we've applied some great hiring strategies. We've got the right people involved the next natural step there is to talk about capital raising as, as probably the next or at least equal um, most important component here. And this is naturally a, a hugely challenging area for emerging managers that maybe don't have um, a, a recognisable name or, or a, a track record to lean upon. And not getting this right is something that can sink a startup fund manager, regardless of how good their investment strategy is. So what would you say to someone who is preparing for investor calls, maybe for the first time, and wants to do everything they can to to tip the odds in their favour? And specifically, are there any um, simple mistakes that you see people making all the time? Yeah, I think the first thing that everyone needs to do is take a step back and be very thoughtful about what is it that they are actually offering. And I think a mistake that that managers, you know, regardless of whether they're new managers or long-standing managers can make um, in the process of trying to attract capital is by trying to be everything to everyone. The reality is a strategy generally will offer a specific solution. It will sort of seek to fix or address, you know, a problem or an issue within an investor's portfolio. And, you know, you need to be thoughtful and very honest with yourself about what your solution Uh, is seeking to achieve. And you need to be able to therefore articulate on that basis what it is that you are actually trying to do. And, you know, that's what I mean by you can't be everything to everyone, because there is no strategy that's the silver bullet for each and every person, because each portfolio uh, has its own challenges, because each portfolio is constructed, I mean, investors portfolio, I should be clear here, is constructed in a slightly different way. And if you can't articulate that, you will struggle because you will get lost in the noise. You know, there is a lot of, there are a lot of competing demands for investors' attention and their time. And so you want to ensure that when you have the success of being able to get in front of that investor, you're able to clearly articulate what you're doing. I think then following on from that, what you need to do is you need to then be systematic about how you approach investors. And this involves, you know, doing research, understanding who you should be pitching to. Um, It also involves, you know, having effective follow-up once you have had meetings and really working out where your message is landing. So what's resonating, what isn't resonating and using that to refine your message over time. Because I think that's the other thing to be mindful of is your message will naturally evolve over time because your strategy is likely to evolve over time. Um, But equally markets change and portfolio composition broadly will change. Um, So like I said, always being thoughtful and mindful about whether what you're doing is reflected in what you're saying. So would it be fair to say then that it's important not to be afraid of saying that you're not trying to do everything and have a clear idea of what you are and what you're not trying to do and and knowing where your your limits are in terms of what you are offering and, and maybe embracing those and just saying this is the specific problem we're trying to solve and everything else is, is outside of our remit? 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think you can always try to leave the door, you know, open to further conversations because as I mentioned, things can evolve. But if you want to be effective in terms of the way that you're raising assets, that's what you have to do. And you have to be mindful of the fact that it is very time consuming, very, it's a very intense process to work with investors and to get allocations. And you want to have, you know, as much really honest feedback as you can get. And you want to, therefore, on the back of that feedback, know where you should be expending more resource, resources excuse me, and where you shouldn't. And one of the most frustrating things, because all managers are time constrained, I think is continuing to sort of push on a door that really you should have probably closed um, because you're using your time, which could be spent better elsewhere, um, by pushing so on something that maybe just has no real viable sort of likelihood of ever being received or achieved in terms of an allocation, you know, better to spend your time focused on, you know, people who it is the right fit for than people who it isn't the right fit for um, because you're trying to be everything to everyone. So it could come across as, as style drift when you're just, you're, you're potentially afraid of saying that you don't do something, but it, it could be perceived in a negative way if you're trying to be a, a jack of all trades. Yeah, and I think I think investors, you know, we, we have to remember, um, you know, the, the professional allocators, they they know what they're looking for, and they also know what works for their portfolio. They know what doesn't work for their portfolio. And on the basis of what the story you tell them in terms of what your strategy is, what you're trying to achieve, they'll know whether it works. And they're 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 best placed to provide you with that feedback. AMA is pleased to announce that AMA Putting ESG into Practice Conference will be returning to London on the 7th of September 2023. Over the course of the day, discussions will address the basics of compliance, key regulatory developments and the wider trends and themes that are guiding firms' approaches to responsible investment. The goal is to give attendees a set of practical insights that can immediately add value to their business. Panels, keynote speakers and workshops will explore the practical aspects of ESG integration for alternative asset managers with a focus on regulatory developments affecting the industry. Interested in finding out more? Visit the AMA website to register now. So moving this, this on then, we've, uh, we've got the right IR person in, they've had the call, they've got the ticket. The next stage is then uh, engaging with investors beyond just bringing in the allocation. That is an ongoing dialogue and I, and I think something that came through loud and clear throughout the day, not just in the IR panel, in fact, is the importance of having that ongoing engagement. But this does seem to be an area where some managers either overlook it or, or fail to go beyond the absolute bare minimum of a, of a monthly letter or, or, or whatever they're just seeing as, as, the, as the standard. So, as with anything with that, that's customer facing, ultimately, there is an opportunity here to, to impress and to stand out. And there are so many tools out there now in the digital comms area. So could you just speak a little bit about uh, what Omni does here? And I imagine this is something that you've had to focus on as you bring new asset classes in and being able to effectively bring uh, investors along on that journey with you. Sure. 
Uh, you know, what we've found is that different investors have different approaches. Um, you know, and they can be as simple as some investors still want to receive their, be it monthly or quarterly communication in the form of an email attachment. Others want to, you know, receive it in the form of an embedded link. Others want to receive it on a portal. And I think what managers need to do is take a step back, you know, before they get into the the hows of delivery, they need to think about what it is that they're actually communicating. And, you know, we oftentimes have a view that, you know, people want to understand, you know, something about the strategy in a certain way. And maybe we've done, you know, we've, we've written our letters in one way for however long we've done it, but it does you know, it does warrant, I think, reconsideration from time to time, because as you mentioned, you know, the industry does move on and there has been a lot of innovation on this point more recently. I think the first thing managers need to give some thought to is what do they want to communicate and what should they be communicating? What is the gap and what is the best compromise to bridge that gap? So I am a firm believer in the fact that there is such a thing as sharing too much information and over communicating. Because what can happen when you do that is the important information can get lost in the noise. So you might, as a manager, receive requests from investors for certain things. And some of those things, it might make sense to provide. But others, you might really want to understand the rationale for why the investor is requesting it. Because it might be that actually you can bring to light the answer to their concern or address their concern by presenting things in a slightly different way. And so that would be my first bit of guidance for emerging managers is just because you've received a request, you know, give some thought to what's driving that request, have a conversation and understand the most effective way to communicate it. Then the second question comes back to the more hows of how do you communicate this? And I think that it's best to take feedback, frankly, from your underlying investors, um, because there are so many different and new you know, methods of communicating that we can work out you know, what your base, what your audience, what your clients are requiring, what they're requesting, and therefore what makes sense. Um, you know, I think we've gone to what I would refer to as a middle ground. Um, so we have used some of these other distribution uh, platforms. And what I mean by distribution platforms is, for example, rather than just sending out a mass email with a random email attachment, we have used sort of bespoke embedded links and that type of technology to really hopefully streamline the process for underlying investors. We haven't, however, gone so far as to start to produce you know, sort of wonderful podcasts like this um, or other online content, which I know some other managers have embraced, um, you know, and I think there has been some positive feedback, but not yet a space that we've entered. The other trend I wanted to highlight here was the quite intriguing one, which is the increasing use of, of separately managed accounts. Or, or SMAs, which panelists noted is or can be a double-edged sword in that it may allow you to, to get, the, get the allocation that you might not otherwise have got, but it comes with some conditions that make it less sticky and it can lead to a situation where your commingled fund is, is neglected. Could you just give us a brief um explanation on what SMAs are and what advice would you give to newer managers that maybe are being pressured by multiple investors to spin these up in order to secure allocation? 
Sure. So if I put my hedge fund cap on and look back on the days when we were running hedge funds rather than running now closed-ended fund strategies in the private markets, um, what single managed accounts meant to us back back in those days um, was a bespoke account, basically, that was set up essentially by a client. They provided the capital into that account, and we then traded that account on their behalf. Now, the interesting thing that we always thought about managed accounts was we would constantly, during the due diligence process, uh, get questions from investors, for example, in the commingled fund about the liquidity terms of the SMAs. And we would always, you know, state the contractual liquidity terms of the SMAs because to be clear, you know, in terms of full disclosure, we did run a handful of large SMAs alongside our commingled fund at the time, our flagship fund, which was event driven. And the caveat that we would always add at the end of articulating or sharing the contractual terms is the fact that by their very nature, if the owner of the capital, i.e. the client who set up the SMA, really decides that they don't want you as a manager to continue to have access to run that fund, they can effectively shut you down. So what I mean by that is they can sort of take the keys away. They can, you know, go out to the counterparties, to your prime brokers, for example, um, and cause your access to, you know, relinquish your access to, to, to those accounts. So we would always give, like I said, uh, the, the contractual terms of the managed accounts when asked during, you know, due diligence sessions, ODD sessions. Um, but we would add this, you know, extra caveat that, you know, people needed to be aware of the fact that SMAs, by their very nature, do have enhanced liquidity. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the cash is going anywhere, but as a manager, your ability to run that um, allocation could in fact disappear. Now, I would contrast that with the private markets whereby managed accounts are generally set up in a very different way. Um, but I think that's probably sort of not really relevant for today's conversation. Um, you know, and I think that we've just hit on one of the reasons probably that the panelists mentioned, you know, that, that managed accounts can be a double-edged sword. I think if if we go back to first principles, what I think emerging managers need to ask themselves before they engage in discussions about managed accounts are two questions. The first and most critical is, is your strategy capacity constrained? If the answer to that question is yes, and the smaller the capacity of your strategy is, my advice would be the more wary you should be of a managed account. Why is that? Because you're giving away capital within the strategy that could be allocated in the commingled fund, and you know that that's limited. So be thoughtful about whether an SMA makes sense for you if you run a capacity-constrained um, a capacity-constrained strategy. The second question that managers need to ask themselves is at what level, i.e. asset level, allocation level, does a managed account make sense? Depending on the nature of your strategy and the instruments you're trading, there can be some added complexities to running, i.e. administering, a managed account. And so you will need to be mindful as a manager as to how many sort of additional hurdles, how much additional administration there is uh, when you add managed accounts and therefore what size it makes sense. So once you've you've answered both of those questions, um, you know then I think if you still want to engage on the on the discussion about managed accounts, and I can understand entirely why managers would, because some strategies do really seek you know to be very streamlined from a managed account perspective. Um, CTAs, global macro are two perfect examples that come to mind. 
Um, so if you do want to embark upon managed accounts, the thing, my, my next bit of advice for managers would be be very thoughtful about the terms on which you offer those managed accounts. Because without a doubt, during your ODD sessions, there will be questions raised about most favored nation status, MFN status, and those will extend into your managed accounts. And if you're being very aggressive, either as it relates to liquidity or fee terms or other you know, transparency metrics for your managed accounts vis-a-vis -vis your commingle fund, you are likely to struggle in terms of articulating why those differences exist and why those differences shouldn't be extended to the commingle fund. So once you've dealt with all of that, you know, then what you need to come come sort of come to a landing on is, you know, if you are going to, you know, entertain managed accounts, how many does it make sense to have? And, you know, what does your business model look like? You know, managed accounts can really be strong relationship builders. So this is where the positive comes in because you can get very close to investors when they have a managed account with you probably closer in some instances than you can with uh, investors who just have an allocation into the commingle fund. But again, even that closeness um, brings about it a bit of a double-edged sword, um, you know, because there is uh, naturally sort of enhanced transparency as in when um, managed account investors are receiving sort of daily reports through the prime brokers or other sort of custodians. Um, and that can raise sort of questions that maybe wouldn't naturally be asked the other thing to be mindful of is during periods of stress, it can create an additional layer of oversight that could sometimes be unhelpful. And maybe I can give sort of a, a concrete anecdote here. So when I cast my mind back to the initial phases of COVID-19, we still had our event-driven fund um, operating within Omni Partners. And one of the managed account clients that had an allocation to the strategy was concerned about the volatility of the strategy during that sort of first couple of weeks. Um, naturally, you can understand why they were concerned because of course there was a lot of uncertainty in the market. But when you're seeing such real-time data, I think that can sometimes cause investors to sort of be I don't know what we would in the US refer to as a Monday morning quarterback. So somebody who's looking at what you've done and sort of questioning it, a backseat driver, you know, whatever phrase you want to use. Um, and that's not always helpful because if you as a manager have strong conviction in what you're doing, you've been trading within all of the expected parameters, risk guidelines, concentration limits, et cetera. And you have a view about how you believe you should trade through a particularly volatile period, having that second guest may not be helpful. And what can be even more problematic is if you face pressure or an explicit instruction from an investor to cut risk at a certain point that can have knock-on implications for the performance of that strategy. And ultimately, if we tie that back to compensation, um, to the ultimate level of compensation that you receive through variable comp, i.e. performance fees, if you are forced to cut 
um, at a point whereby your strategy isn't a drawdown and not because you feel uncomfortable with the risk in your portfolio, not because you've lost conviction, not because you've breached any limits, but simply because the client has requested it. And that is a really important point to take on. But but just to flip the coin on that as well, there is the point that um, even in times of um, low volatility or, or low market stress, I, I should say, there is still the risk that redemptions may come out the blue or, or in su- may come um, regardless of your own performance. And I think maybe there is a um, a misconception that as long as your own performance is going well, although you may have this um, liquidity obligation or redemption obligation, you'll be fine. And actually, there are all sorts of other reasons why an investor may choose to redeem at a potentially um, difficult time for you or at a time when you're pursuing your strategy. And and I think that's something that that, that maybe gets lost in the conversations. Yeah, and actually I can I can maybe share share another anecdote from Omni's history. Um, now this was undoubtedly uh, a period of, of high stress because this was during the global financial crisis. But you may recall at the beginning of our conversation, I talked a little bit about Omni's history and the fact that we did a lot of soul searching in 2009 about how do we create a more robust organization with longevity. And a lot of that was driven by the fact that during 2008, um, our flagship strategy, our event-driven strategy, uh, actually returned nigh on 16% in 2008. And you know, we thought naively at the time that, of course, that would mean we engendered ourselves, you know, with investors. They would be very happy. They would be, you know, long-standing, reliable, loyal customers, clients of ours. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, to a point that you just raised, Drew, some, in some instances, their hands were tied. And what I mean by that is they were facing so much stress in other parts of their broader portfolios that they had a requirement or a need to, to, to basically build capital reserves. And what they did was they, unfortunately, oftentimes trimmed in more liquid funds and in funds that had had increasing performance because suddenly those performance, uh, because of the positive performance, those funds were deemed to be quote unquote overweight in their portfolio. It's this denominator effect that some of us have have read about in the financial um, sector press. And so, you know, we referred to it internally as being used as an ATM during that period. And that was our experience, particularly in the first half of 2009, which was really frustrating. But like I said, we learned a really valuable lesson. And that's actually, you know, if I look back on it, in a way sort of slightly thankful that it happened because that really caused us to give this bigger, broader consideration to how do you create real sort of value in an investment manager and how do you create longevity there? And that's what ultimately, I suppose, propelled us into our move towards uh, or into private markets. Um, but it's precisely what you just described, which is despite the fact that we delivered a positive performance, investors were extremely happy with what we did in 2008 and furthermore into 2009. Uh, but despite that, you know, through circumstances that were out of our control and oftentimes out of the control of the individual teams that had allocated to us, you know, we did face redemptions, which we were completely gobsmacked by, completely flabbergasted, completely unexpected. Um, but once it started, you know, we recognized that we needed to be prepared for that. And we needed to be more thoughtful 
about what it is that we did and what solutions we provided clients. So that is the the perfect segue to my my last question because the the, the real world examples is uh, the perfect way to it to encapsulate that point and I hope you might indulge us with a few more uh, specifically uh, some lessons learned along the way uh, maybe some mistakes that you've made that you would like to see others not make uh, anything you can share that that you sort of wish you had known uh, in years gone by yeah i think i think the first the first thing um in terms of lessons learned uh and i'm going to end up going back to this same period of the global financial crisis but there was a point um whereby we i mentioned we were facing redemptions that were unexpected and at that point in time our fund had i believe monthly liquidity but with 90 day notice And we had investors who submitted redemption requests and told us that they were very desperate for the cash. And so the decision that we made at the time, although it didn't help our AUM figures, uh, was in in instances to actually repay the cash early. So i.e. go to our board of directors, the fund's board of directors, and request that they waive the notice periods. And the reason that we did that was that we we recognized that clients were under extreme pressure at the time. And what the lesson from that for me was, is that there were multiple examples um, that having taken that approach paid off for us in the longer term. So we had one client who was in our co-mingled fund at that time um, who we agreed to waive the notice period for. And ultimately, when they sort of regained their footing in late 09, early 10, they came back and they provided us with a very large managed account allocation. And we, you know, when we were discussing with them, you know, why they felt comfortable doing that at that time, they talked a lot about the fact that we demonstrated the type of sort of character that we had as an organization in the way that we conducted ourselves. So I think my first bit of advice to managers would be, you know, every decision that you make, um, you know, does have the potential to have a knock-on impact on your business in the future. So, you know, be thoughtful about, you know, what it is that you're doing um, at all times, because it may seem like something that's not that important or not that meaningful at the time, but it can go on, you know, to, to really impact. And I think, I think that can also work in the opposite way, you know, decisions that you might make sort of shooting from the hip um, that you think aren't that big a deal, you know, perhaps can come back to, uh, to also sort of um, bite you in the future. Uh, I can't think of an example off the top of my head for us right now, but I'm sure there is one that's just uh, that's just escaping me at the moment. I think this, the second thing that I would, would then um, highlight in terms of lessons learned, I talked earlier about thinking about during the recruitment process who the right spokesperson is. Think about that throughout all of the parts of your business. You know, who should be the person responsible for having certain conversations and certain relationships? It may not always be sort of the obvious fit. So think about that and make sure that you use, you know, that you're utilizing um, you know, those people in the right way. Because, you know, our, our business is very relationship driven, not only on the client side, but equally on the service provider side, on the broader network side. So always be thoughtful about, you know, how can you be using your internal sort of talent, your internal resources um, as effectively as possible to to communicate to the right um, third parties. 
Um, I think then I would also highlight the fact that, you know, the way to keep people, which I've already mentioned, so I sound perhaps like a bit of a broken record, is keep jobs engaging. You know, keep people in opportunities where they're constantly learning. If your staff can learn something new every day, you know, that's a great place to be. And I think that's a great way to try to, you know, reduce turnover as much as possible. Um, and also, you know, create a very loyal employee base. And I think stability is something that that is is critical when you are an emerging and also a longstanding man manager. To be able to point to some element of stability in your business is very critical because this is a reasonably crowded marketplace. So even if you're not the biggest manager with the best known name, you know there are other small things that you can do to try to shift the odds. You know the odds of success in your favor. Um, and then I think the last point that I'll raise is really just around you know staff because ultimately you know we're we, we're providing a service and we're we're a people business you know this is very much like intellectual capital driven and you know you need to have the right people and you know you want to make sure that you don't have everyone just sort of a carbon you know copy cookie cutter image of one another so you know think about that as you're constructing teams make sure that people bring different strengths to the team and make sure there's challenge within the organization when I think about, you know, some of the more challenging periods for Omni, I think it's probably been when, when we've not challenged ourselves enough, when we've not asked ourselves sort of the hard questions that we should have asked ourselves, um, you know, where, where things have tended to be more difficult um, and probably, you know, introduced an extra level of stress to the business that is just unnecessary. So in summary, we could say, don't neglect the small things. Remember you're in a relationship business. Think long term, uh, especially when it comes to those relationships with investors. Keep staff motivated and engaged. And, and partly that speaks to the to the culture point we, we spoke about earlier. Encourage diversity of thought and uh, don't shy away from problems when they do inevitably arise. Yes, you've got it. You, you did it. You summarized it much more eloquently than me. <laughs> So, so just on a personal level, then, very finally, is there any advice that you would give to someone who is either just starting out on this journey? We we painted a, a really beautiful arc here in this conversation about um, some of the main chapters that that will likely come up as in part of this story. But is there anything that you would you would just like to say to someone if they came to you and, and said they were thinking of of taking on this this career path? Yeah, I think. Um... I'll start maybe with the negatives, um, which is it's hard. You know, I think setting up, you know, you know full disclosure, I wasn't at Omni um, in 2004 when it was set up. I only joined the firm a handful of years later at the beginning of 2009. Um, but even then, you know, having been in operation for five years, you know, it was still challenging. Um, and even today still, you know, nearly 20 years on, I would say it's challenging. So, you know, the business isn't an easy business. And I think in a way, the one thing I would say is the highs get higher and the lows get lower, it feels, the longer you do it. Um, you know, but I do think it's well worth it because, you know, there is a huge amount of opportunity. You know, again, I'll reiterate this idea of, you know, intellectual stimulation. There is a huge 
you know, opportunity to, to learn and to be faced with, you know, interesting situations, interesting challenges on a daily basis. So I would say if you can make it through the early stages, you know, it is well worth it. Sort of, you know, the, the risk is worth the reward. But this is, you know, setting up is a risky endeavor um, and it does take a lot of, I think, perseverance. It also, let's be honest, takes a lot of capital. So you need to make sure you've got, you know, the, the right sort of funding. And I think that was something that was mentioned on one of the panels at, at your event was, you know, don't be naive to the fact that this will cost not only from a time perspective, but also from a, a monetary perspective. Um, you know, but like I said, if, if done well, you know, I think that you can set up you know, a really interesting sort of organization. You can be very entrepreneurial and you can be constantly learning, which, I mean, who doesn't want to do that every day? I think that's the the perfect place to end. Uh, Alyssa, this is, has been a really, really excellent uh, conversation and I was very keen to, to get you on just to try and distill some of the many points that were raised um, on the day for for the long short listeners. And I think we've we've done that excellently. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll have to get you on because there's clearly much more to talk about. Well, thanks for having me, Drew. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Listeners interested in learning more about next year's Next Generation Manager Forum or any of the many other ways that AIMA's community of emerging managers collaborates throughout the year should contact our global head of membership, Fiona Treble, or their AIMA contact. Thanks for listening. The Long Short was brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.